You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We acknowledge that we have made mistakes in the past from which we've learned and improved our privacy program. We must clearly explain how our products use personal information and provide easy-to-find, user-friendly controls to manage privacy. Google's chief privacy officer, Keith Enright, testified on Capitol Hill four years ago over concerns about how his company tracks consumer data. Now Google has agreed to pay up for its controversial location tracking practices in the largest multi-state privacy settlement in U.S. history. Google will pay nearly $392 million in a settlement with 40 states over allegations that the company secretly tracked users' movements and provided the data to advertisers for years, even after consumers had turned off the location tracking feature. Location history has become a particularly sensitive topic following the Supreme Court decision overturning the right to abortion amid fears that prosecutors could use such data to track women's movements to enforce state abortion bans. Joining me is Eric Goldman, a professor at Santa Clara University Law School and co-director of the High Tech Law Institute. How big a deal is this settlement? I mean, it's basically $10 million for each of 40 states. The settlement itself is important in showing how the attorney generals are actively looking to redress privacy invasions. The grand scheme of things, however, it's probably not as big of a deal as people might expect. Both the dollar amount is not a huge deal for Google, but also the way in which it's likely to change people's lives is going to be actually quite muted. Tell us what Google was accused of in this lawsuit. Google was accused of mishandling location information. This is about where people are at a specific period of time. And Google was accused of continuing to record location information even when people asked them not to. And in general, the way it worked, there were various details. But the main aspect is that Google had several different ways of configuring the options. And so even if people turned off location information in one option, there might been other options that they also need to turn off. And then Google is also alleged to be tracking it even if people were told they would never be tracking location information. So Google was 
effectively alleged to be lying to consumers about when it was collecting location information. Google says that it stopped that practice. Is there any question that they've stopped that practice? I have no reason to believe that they continue the practice they were alleged to be engaged in. But we really don't understand all the different things Google is doing. So they might be doing something else nefarious that we don't really know. But the attorney generals have identified eight specific things they wanted Google to fix. I'm going to assume that Google either fixed it or stopped it. As part of the deal, Google also agreed to significantly improve its location tracking disclosures and user control starting next year. I have to tell you that I find all these location tracking devices and confusing to try to turn off because if you turn off one thing, oh, then you can't have this. Yes. And to be fair, there are many times that actually we benefit from services tracking our location and information. And I'll just give you one quick example. I went hiking uh, on my most recent vacation and I had trail maps that I had downloaded where I was able to track whether I was on the trail or not. And that's actually kept me safe. It saved my time, saved wear and tear on my knees. So the fact that the services use location information can be a, a net positive. The point of the AG's enforcement is that we should be in charge of when location information about us is used. We should have that choice. It shouldn't be taken away from us. I know that Arizona sued Google and secured $85 million because of the state's Consumer Fraud Act. So do other states have similar consumer acts that Google has to be careful with? Yeah, the AGs use generally their standard consumer protection laws uh, to crack down on Google, basically saying that Google lied to consumers. Um, And that's standard issues for the attorney generals to deal with. However, there's a new class of laws that have been coming out in the last five years, essentially since Google was alleged to be violating these laws, that provide extra protection for location information. And it's really those laws that have become the centerpiece of any future actions to control location information. And it's those laws that are likely to really dominate how we as consumers interact with services like Google with respect to our location information. In other words, the AG's enforcement dealt with old law and old practices. The new law will come into effect that will significantly impact location information across the board. Do most states have those laws? No. Let's call them consumer privacy laws. Uh, California enacted the first uh, starting in 2018. It has since replaced that law with a new law coming into effect in January called the California Privacy Rights Act. And less than half a dozen states have enacted some variation of the two California laws, but they're growing rapidly. Other states will enact them shortly. And most importantly, because Google is located in California, they're likely to comply with that law across the board, not just in California. So when California's law comes into effect, it's likely to set a national standard, at least with respect to services like Google. As far as possible criminal prosecutions under abortion bans, there are fears that some state prosecutors could use location data to track women's movements and prosecute them. Google has said it would automatically delete records of users' visits to sensitive locations like abortion clinics. But can we trust that they're going to do that and also that their method will be effective? 
Obviously, Google will define what it means by sensitive locations. It might be that it won't be comprehensive from our perspective as consumers, but the point is that they're trying to come up with ways of controlling location information that are more pro-consumer because of the fact that location information is so sensitive. Placing a person at a particular spot in time creates all kinds of potential safety and legal risks. And so that's why I think that the AG settlement is really dealing with a legacy issue because of the fact that we know so much more today than we did in 2018 about how important it is to protect location information. Eric, has there been a lawsuit where something terrible happened to someone because of location tracking? I don't uh, track the cases that way, but a classic example of ways that things can go wrong is with uh, tracker devices that a X. A significant other will place onto a victim's car. By doing that, they can then track where that person is. And in some cases, that's led to physical attacks on the victim because the criminal knew where to find the person. I was reading all these articles about how to turn things off, and I went to my iPhone. Then I realized I can't turn it off completely because then I can't use the iPhone finder, and I can't use Google Maps and all this stuff. That gets the point, though, doesn't it, June? That really hits the nail on the head, that location information is a valuable resource that we want some services to use in certain circumstances because it literally makes our lives better and helps keep us safe and gives us information that we want on the spot. So we we don't want to categorically turn off location information. That would be a misstep. But we do want services to listen to us. If we say, don't track us now, we need them to honor that. And that really was the point of the AG's enforcement. And you think that at least Google and perhaps Facebook, that they've learned a lesson? I don't know if they've learned a lesson. I think that the new consumer privacy laws that are rolling out will force them to change their behavior, even if they would prefer not to. So I don't think this particular settlement is going to teach them that lesson. I think the other laws will cause them to take it seriously. The bottom line is that I think services like Google and Facebook now realize just how sensitive location information is, and they're being forced to do better. Thanks, Eric. Always a pleasure. That's Eric Goldman, a professor at Santa Clara University Law School and co-director of the High Tech Law Institute. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... 
It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. President Joe Biden's plan to cancel billions of dollars in student loans is in jeopardy because of legal challenges that could mean no one receives a dollar of debt relief. The White House insists it will ultimately prevail even though two federal courts blocked the program from taking effect. The setbacks have rattled supporters who fear that more than 40 million Americans who expected relief will instead start getting billed for their student debt in January when a pandemic-era moratorium on payments is slated to expire. Joining me is Elliot Stein, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. So has the problem in these lawsuits been having a plaintiff that has standing to sue? Yeah, that was definitely a hurdle uh, in some of the early lawsuits, and a couple of them, uh, a couple of the lawsuits were dismissed because of standing, right? You know, it's a basic tenet of uh, litigation in the U.S. that in order to sue, you have to have some sort of concrete and direct injury. Otherwise, our courts would just be flooded with, uh, you know, frivolous litigation. So we had several lawsuits filed challenging the student loan plan. Like I said, the first couple were tossed because the plaintiffs couldn't show that they were, you know, injured by the plan in a concrete or direct way. But more recently, we've had a couple lawsuits, including one where a court in Texas essentially threw out the plan and said it was unconstitutional. And it found that the plaintiffs in that case were properly injured uh, sufficiently to bring a lawsuit. That case, the Texas case, is that the only case where the judge got to the merits of the Biden administration's loan forgiveness plan? It is. It is. And it's interesting because it's interesting how he got to the merits. The borrowers in that case said that they were injured because they couldn't provide notice and comment on the plan. And the government responded and said, well, you know, the HEROES Act that we think authorizes the plan doesn't say that we have to give a notice and comment period um, for this kind of plan. And the judge said, well, you know, I'm going to jump to the merits and on the merits, I don't think the plan is authorized under this statute. And as a result, you know, the language in the statute saying that you don't need to have notice and comment doesn't even apply. And so that's how we got to standing. It was sort of mixing both the standing issue and the merits issue. And that's how we got to it. I mean, he did it backwards. You're supposed to find, do the plaintiffs have standing first? That's before you even get to the merits. Yeah, it, it was a little bit unusual, you know, a little bit maybe creative or clever. I'm not sure he's actually going to get reversed on that. Um, you know, it's going to go to the Fifth Circuit from there, but I agree. He sort of he sort of conflated the two, you know, the standing issue and the merits issue. But at the end of the day, you know, from there, it's going to go to the Fifth Circuit, and I, I don't see this judge getting reversed there. The Fifth Circuit is one of the most conservative in the country, and I, I don't think it's I don't think it's, he's going to get reversed at the Supreme Court either. In that case, it was two borrowers who were partially or fully ineligible for the loan forgiveness. So they're saying we have standing because we're not getting what other people got. 
Exactly. One one of the borrowers' loans were commercially held, and the plan, you know, the, the Biden administration had tweaked its plan so that it would only apply to uh, loans held by the Department of Education and not privately held loans. Um, and so that person said, well, I can't participate in the plan because my loans are commercially held. And then the other borrower in that case was eligible for the $10,000 forgiveness, but not eligible for the the higher amount, the $20,000 forgiveness um, that Pell Grant recipients are eligible for. And so they said, you know, we can't participate in this plan. And, you know, had there been a notice and comment period, we could have at least given our thoughts, but we were precluded from doing that as well. So that that's the injuries that they pointed to. It sounds a little tenuous to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was surprised by it too. I didn't think those kinds of injuries would be, you know, concrete and direct enough, you know, to get standing. But this judge, you know, like we talked about, he sort of got around that by jumping to the merits, finding, you know, that, that the, the plan was not authorized under the statute that the administration pointed to. And so then he sort of backed into standing that way. But I'm, I'm not confident he's going to get reversed. Why do you think the Supreme Court wouldn't reverse him? You know, I think they're certainly on the merits. They're going to agree with him. And, you know, I'm I'm not sure that what he did is entirely um, not allowed. Uh, you know, and in, in some sense, I, um, you know, I, I think they'll probably find a way to agree with, with that judge in order to buy the plan from, from it being implemented. Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett has refused twice, though, to block Biden's student loan relief plan without comment. So it could just be because she's waiting for appeals to play out. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The, the two cases were really like even bigger stretches in terms of standing, right? In one of those cases, it was a borrower in Indiana who said his state income taxes would go up if he was automatically enrolled in the plan, but the administration had already changed the plan to say that borrowers would not be automatically enrolled and they could opt out if they wanted to. And then the other case was just a general taxpayer grievance saying that, you know, public funds should not be used for this. And and that kind of standing has almost always been precluded by the Supreme Court. Those cases were much weaker in terms of standing. Elliot, let's talk about the lawsuit that went up to the Eighth Circuit. Six Republican states brought the lawsuit. What was their argument? They were arguing a few things, but sort of broadly speaking, you know, the overarching um, theory of their case was that servicers that were instrumentalities of those states would be injured uh, because if the loan balances were reduced, they would earn less income in terms of servicing those loans. What's interesting is um, a lot of those servicers primarily service commercially held loans, privately held loans. And so in response to that lawsuit originally, the administration tweaked its plan and, and narrowed it so that it would only apply to federally held loans and not privately held loans. But one of the servicers in that case in the state of Missouri also serviced federally held loans. And so the trial court judge in that case said, well, actually, you know, Missouri can't, Missouri and the state servicer are actually separate entities. Missouri shouldn't be able to sue on behalf of the servicer. If the servicer thinks it's injured, it should sue on its own. So the trial court dismissed that lawsuit, but the Eighth Circuit said, well, actually, you know, the the servicer could be an arm of the state. It looks like it likely is an arm of the state. So we're going to put the 
the administration's plan on hold while this appeal plays out. So they didn't reach the merits. They didn't fully decide standing yet even. But, you know, it looks like they're leaning towards finding standing. And then once once they find standing, I'm, I'm quite sure they'll also um, reject the plan on the merits. The Eighth Circuit is yeah. dominated by judges named by Republican presidents. And on the panel were three judges appointed by Republican presidents. Yeah, the Eighth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit are, you know, dominated by judges appointed by Republican presidents. But, you know, I always say, you know, judges appointed by Republicans are less likely to defer to uh, agency action. But, you know, that's that's a generalization. It doesn't always hold. The trial court judge in that case was a George W. Bush appointee, and he dismissed the lawsuit, and, you know, it turned out different on appeal. Is the Biden administration appealing this Eighth Circuit decision to the Supreme Court? So the Eighth Circuit decision, you know, that appeal is still playing out, right? All, all the Eighth Circuit said was that they're putting the plan on hold while the appeal plays out. Now the administration could um, ask the Supreme Court, uh, you know, to undo the stay of the plan. I think that's highly unlikely to succeed because, you know, it, it makes sense to sort of keep the status quo while litigation plays out. But they have already appealed the Texas judge's decision to the Fifth Circuit. So that that one will proceed. And in the meantime, what's happening to the people who are applying or were applying for student loan yeah, forgiveness? Think, so applications that were already made be- before these decisions are, you know, just held in limbo. And since these decisions have come out in the last couple of weeks, the administration has basically suspended the application process. So you, you can't even apply for forgiveness at this point. This helps servicers for privately owned loans? Yeah. So, you know, in, in that um, in the Eighth Circuit case, in the, in the trial court, when, when, those, when, that, when that lawsuit was first filed, the, 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 the administration's plan originally would have allowed forgiveness for both loans held by the Department of Education, but also federal loans that were held by uh, private uh, um, entities, commercial entities. Um, what the fear was that, that a lot of the, the servicers like, you know, maybe like Navient um, or Discover, uh, co- you know, companies that, that service commercially held loans would sue. They they never did, but but that's but some of the servicers that were state instrumentalities of the six GOP states that sued did service commercially held loans. So what the administration did to try to um, essentially undercut those lawsuits was that they narrowed the plan and they said only federally held loan loans will be eligible for forgiveness and not commercially held loans. And so that basically took away the possibility of lawsuits by servicers um, that service commercially held loans. Like I said, the, the Missouri servicer also services federally held loans, and so they, they're still in the case. But companies like, you know, like Navient, Sally Mae, Discover, they're, they're essentially already helped by the administration narrowing the plan only to federally held loans, which they don't even service. So in your opinion, the merits of the case are weak for the administration, because it based it on the HEROES Act? Yeah, I mean, the, the way I would say it is that, you know, it, um, you know judges who subscribe to the philosophy um, of the major questions doctrine um, and who want to sort of 
curtail the administrative state certainly are going to find the administration's justification for using the HEROES Act as weak. Um, and we've already seen that, you know, with the judge in Texas, uh, with the Eighth Circuit uh, to some extent. Um, and, you know, we, we've seen it previously with the administration trying to use COVID um, to get certain things done, like the eviction moratorium, you know, they, they tried to uh, you know, the court said that the CDC couldn't use, um, that they didn't have statutory authority to enact an eviction moratorium, same with OSHA trying to get uh, an employer vaccine mandate. So, you know, we're, we're sort of in this state where, um, you know, conservatives cer certainly dominate the Supreme Court and the Fifth Circuit and the Eighth Circuit and some other circuit courts, and they subscribe to the major questions doctrine. And unless you have a statute that really specifically authorizes, um, you know, action that has, you know, national and economic importance, you know, they're, they're, they're going to reject um, agency action um, unless you can really point to specific statutory authority. Thanks so much, Elliot. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Elliot Stein. For more of Elliot's analysis, you can go to BIGO on the Bloomberg Terminal. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.